Welcome, everybody. I'm glad to see you. Some of you are having lunch, and you're making me hungry, but I'm glad you're enjoying your lunch. I'll, I'll eat something. I usually eat some crackers after tune-up. Not quite the same as uh, the roast beef and the chicken and all that good stuff we had, but it'll do. It'll do for the day. But I'm delighted you've come for our Bible study. So in a minute, we'll pray. We're in Luke. Today, we're in chapter 15. And we'll be starting. Whoops, I lost everybody. Hello. You're still there. Oh, okay. That's good. I can't see anybody, but uh, that's okay. I'll. I don't have to see you. Look at the top where it says speaker view or gallery view. I don't even have that. I just have. There we go. Okay, I'm getting back. All right, I have Vicki. All right, there we go. Okay, we're back. All right, um, today we'll start with Chapter 15. I hope you have the outline or at least looked at it or maybe you copied it. And we'll start with uh, verse 17 in a minute. And it says, sin is insanity. And it is. I don't know how often we think of it that way, but it is absolutely insanity. And so we'll talk about that momentarily. So let's bow our heads for prayer, and then we'll dig into the scripture. Father, thank you for giving us a very pretty morning. And we're grateful it's certainly warmed up now, but we love the coolness that was in the air just a little while ago. We thank you for the change of the seasons and the beauty that comes with it. Father, we remember today those who are right in the path of this next hurricane, and we are very concerned for them and pray your protection for them. And we would pray that, Father, uh, somehow this storm would not be as bad as it looks like it's uh, going to be. And so we pray for no loss of life and, and no damage. And, Father, you will just watch over and protect. And many people here on the screen perhaps know folks who live along the coast of Louisiana or Texas or, or Mississippi and all the way to Florida. And so we lift them up to you today and ask for protection. Well, Father, we thank you that we get to dig into your word. We're in Luke, and we love the book of Luke. We're grateful for all that we're learning uh, about Jesus and so I pray that you'd speak to our hearts today, that in our study together, you would be glorified. Thank you for everybody who's here. Bless each one and their families. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, if you look at your outline, or, you, or if you don't have it, you just remember from last week that the 15th chapter of, of, of Luke has to do with repentance. And there are several stories uh, in, in, the, in the chapter. But if you remember, um, we asked the question, why repent? And we observed a few things. The first was, we are of great worth to God. You are of great worth to God. And there's no clearer demonstration of that than the cross of Jesus Christ. His clearest message to you and to me, we are of eternal value to God. And then we observed also last time that repentance brings joy to God. And my, how it does. There's rejoicing in heaven over one soul who repents. So if we have an accurate view of the number of people who are coming to faith in Christ every week, there will be several who will set off a celebration in heaven just while we're meeting here studying the Gospel of Luke. Because somewhere in this world, somebody is giving his or her heart to Jesus right about now, and there'll be somebody else in just a few moments. So uh, rejoicing is going on in heaven, even as we're talking about rejoicing in heaven. Then the last thing we observed last week in verses 11 through 16 from this chapter is this, sin destroys. We know that experientially. We know that from scripture. We know that from observation as we see it in the lives of others, perhaps as we remember it in our own lives, sin absolutely will destroy us. So that brings us today to verse 17 through 20. And this is all part of the story of the lost son or 
what we more commonly seem to call it the prodigal son. So um, jumping in again, right in the middle of that story, we're going to look beginning at verse 17. And it says, when he came to his senses, now who is that? That's the prodigal son or the lost son, the son who has left home. He came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You get the implication of, well, it's not an implication. It's a direct statement. He is returning, not expecting to be restored to sonship, but just hoping, just hoping maybe his father isn't too angry and would be willing to make him a servant in the household. That's amazing. So then look at verse 20 and we'll talk, um, we'll talk about it. We're just going to look at the first part of verse 20 for the moment. So he got up and went to his father. So this was more than talk. This was more than thinking. This was more than wishing. It became actuality when the son got up and went back to his father. How many people have you known, maybe yourself, who talk about repentance someday? I know I need to get right with God. Someday I need to do this or do that. But it never happens. But this son meant it. He came to his senses and he said, I don't deserve to get to go home. I don't deserve the mercy of my father. I'm just hoping that my dad will make me a servant in his household. I'll be so happy with that. So we see uh, highlighted for us the fact that sin is insanity. This young man has just, he has sunk to the bottom. So I want us to notice, and I've got them all beginning with an R, which kind of makes them, I guess, memorable. Three things in these verses. And the first is this, there is a recognition. There is a recognition. Look again at verse 17. He came to his senses. He has been out of his mind, as it were, in rebellion and sin. He was living a nightmare. Believe me, when this boy left home, he was in total rebellion, but he never expected that rebellion to lead him to the bottom of the pit. He was expecting to live it up, I suppose, for the rest of his life. But it didn't work out that way, did it? So he's been out of his mind, in rebellion, and in sin. He was living a nightmare, but suddenly he came to his senses. Now, we would say the Holy Spirit slapped him and got his attention. That's a crude way of putting it, but that is basically what has happened. So he is in this moment recognizing God and his goodness, and he is going to beg... He has been begging for pods that the pigs eat, and he realizes that his father's hired servants are faring much better in life than he is. And so this boy is coming. He's making a recognition of who he is, where he is, and what he needs to do. Now, I would submit to you a person cannot repent until he or she sees the absolute insanity of sin in the light of God's goodness. Now, that's what happens when we repent. Repentance is not a light, frivolous thing. It's serious. And in repenting, we are realizing that the sin that has gripped us is is absolutely insanity, and we can't stay there. We've got to get out of it and get right with God. Living apart from God and God's grace amounts to craziness and depravity. And that's where this boy is. He is in, he is in a bad, bad place. Um, have you ever thought of somebody and said, man, the last time I talked to him or to her, 
he, she was in a bad place. That's what you're talking about. One who needs to repent. So this young man begins with a recognition of who he is and where he is and a remembrance of where he's come from. So that leads to the second R, and that is a resolution. A resolution. So if you look again at uh, verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father. So here, there's his resolution. I'm not going to stay here in the pig pen any longer. I'm going to set out and go back to my father, and I know what I'm going to say when I, when I see. I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. In other words, he's speaking the truth. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, his place is with his father, and he is going to return and confess. Now, I'm impressed with this confession because there are no excuses. There's no explanation or trying to explain why he did what he did. But he simply confesses that he sinned, and he sinned greatly against his father. I have sinned, period. Now, a lot of times people will say, I've sinned, but, or I've sinned because, or I'm sinned, and they'll turn and look at somebody else and point the finger. The boy didn't do that. He said, I have sinned against God and against you. Remember, all sin is against God. And sometimes our sin can be against other people also, but ultimately all sin is against God. No excuses, no explanation. I have sinned. Now, often we express regret for consequences because we've been caught or exposed or whatever word you want to use. You remember that as a parent, don't you? Sometimes when you you, you would discover your kid had done something wrong and, uh, you confront them with it, and you could tell. I mean, you know, a parent can just tell. Is he sorry that he got caught, or is he sorry that he sinned? And there is a difference. There is a difference. Well, I don't have to point the finger at your children. How about yourself? Can you remember being sorry that you got caught in some sin, or were you really sorry about what you'd done? And there, there is a difference. True repentance is regret for the sin itself, not the getting caught or the being exposed, but it is regret about the sin itself. So that leads to the next R, and that's a resignation. That's a resignation. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's a resignation to his position and his being undeserving of any grace, any mercy at all. He is seeing himself really as God sees him, and he knows his depravity, so he resigns any thoughts of sonship. He would be grateful just to be a servant in his father's household. Now, don't think that this Jewish boy was not aware of the insult that he had he had brought to his, his father. And, you know, he left without knowing his father's long-term reaction to what he had done. He goes back not knowing, is my father angry? Is my father sad? Is my father ambivalent? Or does my father just not care about me anymore? I, I don't know. I didn't hang around long enough to find out. But what he does know is what he did was, Remember last time we observed, he was really saying to his dad, why don't you just drop dead so I can have what I want? It's an insult to his dad. He's not willing to wait for his father to actually pass away and for the boy to inherit whatever is left to him. He just wants his dad to get out of the way. Go ahead and drop dead. I want what's mine. So since he can't make that happen short of murder and then he wouldn't get anything, uh, he's just gonna let, he's gonna ask for it now. Hey, hey, old man, give it to me now, and I'm gonna bug off. That was an insult to his dad, and, and 
the amazing thing about the dad in the first tip off to the kind of man that he was is he he didn't have he could have told his son no but he didn't i think he knew the son had already left home in his heart so the dad was thinking i might as well let him go and he will experience what he will experience and so he gave his son his inheritance and let him go but the boy doesn't know how his dad's going to react. So he's just going to go back, and he's just hoping maybe, 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 if my dad's not too mad at me, he might let me be a servant. And that's true repentance. True repentance makes no demand on God. He didn't come back and say, hey, I want to reassume my position. How about it? Um, he was really saying, I deserve nothing, but if in your mercy you'd make me a servant, I'd be so grateful. Repentance is beautiful. It is. Repentance is beautiful. Repentance finds God beautiful. And heaven rejoices when one repents and when God is valued. And that's the picture we get here. This son sees his father as wonderful. And so he's asking just, let me be a servant. I'll sleep outside. I'll sleep in a hut. I'll sleep under a tree. But at least I know I'll eat. And, and so make me a servant. We're led in on some beautiful words in this conversation. We are allowed to enter in and hear the words spoken by a repentant son and by a loving father. And uh, these words are beautiful. So that brings us then to the next thing that begins with verse 20, the second part of the verse. God is a loving father. See, that's the picture. We're into the story, and it is, it's incredible. But don't forget the big picture that Jesus is painting for us in his parable. God is a loving father. So look at the second part of verse 20. So here's the boy. He's coming. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. The dad's outside working, whatever he's doing, he's outside, and he looks out there, and he sees somebody coming, and then the walk, the gate looks familiar. And then as he continues to look, the boy gets close enough to where the dad knows it's his son. Now, the boy probably looked pretty bad based on what he'd been through. He probably didn't look like the supposedly handsome young man that left. This guy looks pretty bad, but his dad knows it's his son. He knows. And he sees him a long way off, and the father saw him and folded his arms and tapped his toes. Right? No. Uh, he would have, in our, you know, in the world's way of thinking, he'd have had a right to do that. You know, probably this, this father, some of his friends, if they had been visiting at that moment, they would say, let him have it, Chester, <laughs> or whatever. Let him have it, Le- Levi, or whatever his name was, let him have it. No, the father sees him a long ways off, and what happens? He's filled with compassion for his boy. And he ran, he ran to his son. Now, in the culture of that day, most Jewish men of his age didn't run. It was not dignified. And so, and especially to run to a son who had done what this boy did, the boy didn't deserve it. But this dad's heart, is the heart of a loving father, and he is filled with compassion. And he ran, probably had to cinch up his cloak to do it. He ran and threw his arms around his boy and kissed him. That's a, you know, there's something emotional. You know, if you stop and you think on these verses and you don't run through them too fast, uh, it'll, it'll grab you right in your heart. Maybe you've been through something like this with a boy or a daughter, or maybe you yourself were like the prodigal. But we see the compassion of the father. So God is a loving father. 
and we see the absolute beauty of verse 21. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now, the Bible doesn't say, so we're making a conjecture, but I would not be surprised if the boy was sobbing these words. I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. That was the kind of moment that it was. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I, whether he was sobbing or not, I don't know, but I do have this sense that he wasn't dispassionately saying these words. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. No, I don't think it's that way at all. I think his voice was filled with pathos and emotion. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, the part that amazes us, I think, amazes me, is the father is not resentful. Humanly speaking, he had a right to be, but he wasn't. He didn't fold his arms and say, I told you so. Again, who could have blamed him for saying that? You know, somebody, you know, somebody at some point has got to say to this boy, you got what you deserved. I told you this was going to happen. Those words were never uttered. And so the father's not resentful. Instead, he says to his servants, quick, you know, when, when, the, when the, the boss says quick, the servants are going to move fast. Bring the best robe. He didn't say bring a robe. He just said, see if you can fetch a robe. He said, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and, and sandals on his feet. Isn't that amazing? The heart of a of a loving father as a reward to one who doesn't deserve it, he has a celebration. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. That's expensive. That's expensive. So we're gonna kill it and we're gonna have a feast and we're gonna celebrate. Now it's gonna take a while to get this calf cooked. So in the meantime. They're all celebrating, having a great time. The dad and the boy can exchange thoughts and hugs and gratitude on the part of the boy. But what we know is enough for us to know. And here's what the dad says in that 23rd verse. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate. So then that leads me to the next point, which is verse 24. Repentance reflects new birth. Repentance reflects new birth. Now, now look at verse 24. has got to be one of the great verses of Scripture. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's kind of an understatement. They began to celebrate. Now, picture of redemption, a picture of new birth. Look at it, from death to life, from lost to found, from guilty to forgiven. I love the way the father speaks to his son, speaks to his servants, and the way that the father treats that boy who has come home. It is amazing. So what's the point of the story? To point out to us that God is a loving God and he forgives sin and he does so without stipulation. When he sees repentance, he does not say, okay, we got to do four or five more things and I'm you go out and build a fence. And if you do the fence well uh, and you don't run off, I'll, I'll know you're serious. Uh, I think this dad knows he knows his boy. He can look into his eyes. He can hear his voice. He sees this is this is real repentance. God does that too. You know, if we throw if we throw phony repentance at God, our, our time and wasting our breath. 
he knows. God knows when our repentance is the real thing, when it's sincere. And so when it is sincere, there is genuine forgiveness in heaven. And what has got to be one of the greatest stories in all the Bible. God truly does love us. And instead of saying to the boy, okay, I'll let you be a servant. He said, no, no, (laughs) no, no. I'm going to put you back in the place of of my son and act as if you never left. And And I love you. It's an amazing, amazing story. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they had a celebration. You know, I sort of wish we'd just end the story right there. I, I, boy, I hate what comes next. But it's there for a reason. So look at verse 25. I've entitled that, Non-Repentance is Tragic. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. I think that servant was telling it with a smile. I do. He sounds happy because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. Oh, my goodness. He became angry and refused to go in. So somebody told the dad, your, your oldest son's outside. He's not coming in. So this also is a hurtful thing, an insult to the father, to make this man come outside to greet the son who should have been inside rejoicing at the return of his brother. So the father went outside and pleaded with him, pleaded with him. This dad had been through the, was going through the school of hard knocks, wasn't he? But he answered his father, older boy answered his father, not respectfully at all. Look, he says to his father, look, it's like, pay attention, old man, insulting statement. All these years, I've been slaving for you. Oh, so that's how the boy pictures it. He's been at home working, and there's a resentful note in his body. I've been slaving for you. You don't use that word for something you love doing. You don't say, I've been slaving over this all day. That means you don't like it. So the boy says, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Not outwardly. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, oh, he's not my brother anymore. (laughs) No, I'm not going to acknowledge him as my brother, this son of yours. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Whoa, wait a minute. Who said anything about prostitutes? Guess what? I believe the older son had been spying on the younger son. Maybe not personally. He might have sent a servant to do it. But I think he had been tracing his steps because he knew too much detail to not have been aware of what was going on with the boy, his brother. So this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, probably among other things, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. And I resent it like crazy. Now, let let me ask you, uh, what you're thinking about the boy right now? Kind of two ways to look at that. One is, man, I feel sorry for that older son. He is lost in his own self-centered sin. Or, yeah, I kind of agree with him. How could the dad do that when this boy's been here faithfully serving all this time? And he treats this 
reprobate better than he treats the son who's been here all along. So some might have said, you ever thought about that? What? How do you view this? Is there something inside of you that says, well, I, yeah, I sort of agree with the older boy. Or are you saying that's sad that he would treat his father like that? Just throwing it out there for you to think about. My son, this man, this dad's filled with compassion for both boys. My son, the father said, he's not mad. His heart's hurt and broken, but he's not mad. You're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, oh, this older son, this is tragic. He dishonors his father. He refuses to share the joy of what's happening in his brother's life. He requires the father to come outside and see me and what an indignity. But the father remains gentle, remains gentle. I kind of think one of the pictures Jesus is trying to get across to us here is, is that the Pharisees who are hounding Jesus all the time, kind of like the older son, you know, they're righteous, good folks on the outside. And this old older boy dishonors God because God didn't act like he thought he should. So this older boy has an idea. Hey, old man, this is how you should behave right now. And that's not what the father's doing. And that's older boys. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like it at all. So repentance, uh, I, I see this sometimes. I see this sometimes. Here's what I've seen, and maybe you've seen. I hope you hadn't done it. I hope I haven't done it. Um, He looks at the repentance of another, and he doesn't believe it. He's got a jaded heart. And that happens often. How many times have you heard someone say, well, so-and-so got saved today, supposedly. We'll see. I don't think I really believe it. I don't think I really buy it. Sort of what the boy was, the older son is saying. I, you know, dad, this is, this is ridiculous. And the boy's probably thinking, he's not, this is not going to last. But the dad knows he's seen repentance face to face and he knows it's genuine. He knows it's real. So the picture is God knows genuine repentance and when it comes there's celebration before the throne of god celebrating by god himself and with the angels it's joy in heaven over this one who has repented so let's tie it up one of the great stories in all of scripture repentance is joy in heaven repentance is joy in heaven Repentance is joy in the church. Repentance is joy in the church. When somebody repents, we get happy. We get happy. That's why I'm always thrilled when people clap and shout and stomp their feet at baptism. Well, that ought to be a happy moment. My only regret is that We didn't do that sooner. I think it was around the late 90s when the church started doing that. Just happened. One Sunday, we're baptizing, and all of a sudden, I hear somebody shout. And then all of a sudden, around the room, there's more shouting and clapping and yay! And it probably shocked some. I mean, it kind of shocked me up in the baptistry. Man, I loved it. And it's continued to this day. So keep it up, church. When your next pastor comes and he has his first baptism, he'll be thrilled because I know it's the kind of man that's going to come. He'll be thrilled when you shout and clap and stomp your feet. It's going to be good. So repentance is joy in heaven. Repentance is joy in the church. Repentance is joy in the center.
joy in the sinner's life. He's been cleansed. He's been forgiven. He's getting a new start. And it's beyond anything he ever dreamed of. A call to repentance is a call to see your value in God's eyes. Exactly what it is. Repentance isn't giving up this life's pleasures. It is gaining heaven's greater pleasures. When you call on a person to repent, you're calling him or her into what God finds beautiful. So we started last week talking about repentance and saying that's not a bad word. Sometimes we act like we don't want to use the word because we think somebody will resent it. No, it's a beautiful word. And when we encourage someone to repent, we are really encouraging that person to come into God's best for them. Well, you know, this is such a great parable that we could probably camp out here for another two or three weeks and not exhaust everything that's in the chapter. But we need to move on. So we're going to go now to chapter 16. And if you see your outline, it says shrewd stewardship, verses 1 through 9. So let's see what um, Jesus says in chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man. So here's another parable. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Now, understand the setting so you'll understand what happens next. The wealthy man is giving him time to come and show him the books. You know, here's what I've heard, and if it's true, you're not going to be manager any longer. I want you to bring the books in here, and I want you to show me what's going on because that's why the manager has time to do what he does. So the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. He's kind of got had the soft life. So, oh, my goodness, you mean I might start digging ditches to make a living? And I'm certainly not going to beg. I'm too proud to do that. So I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So that's an admission that he's guilty of the accusation. Otherwise, he wouldn't be developing some scheme to protect himself. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. That's a lot of olive oil. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. You know, and by the detail, I'll sign it. We'll move on. Then he asked the second. How much do you owe? He said, a thousand bushels of wheat. That's a lot of wheat. So the manager said, take your bill and make it 800. And then the master commended the dishonor. And then the master, these words shock us. You know, when you look at it at first, you say, what? The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what's happening here? This manager does what he does, not because he thinks that, that the rich man is going to forgive him. He knows that's not going to happen. It's because he wants those people who have been forgiven part of their bill to love him and to be his friend. And to take him in, as it were, to help him. So he's thinking shrewdly. If I if if I make these people owe me, then they'll help me, and and they'll help me get on my feet again. That's his thinking. So what what is what does the manager what does this rich man say? <laughs> You're pretty shrewd there, Matt, Mister Manager. You're pretty shrewd. So a, kind of an unusual story. But he tells it to his disciples. God is pictured as the rich man. The manager or steward represents the disciples. It's a parable. A parable is a story intended to teach one main point. And here's the point. 
God's stewards must be true. Not dishonest, but true. That's the, that's the point. So in verses 1 and 2, there's a big mess up. The steward failed to properly manage the rich man's possessions, and his own reputation as a steward is about to be destroyed. So that, that's the mess up that we see in verses 1 and 2. A bad reputation for the steward is, is about to unfold so that not only is he going to lose his position, but his reputation is going to be so bad nobody will want to hire him. And by his own admission, he's gone soft in his time as the manager, so he's no longer strong enough to dig for a living, and he's too ashamed to beg. So his goal is figure out a way to live at the expense of other people. That's what he wants to do. So if if I can get uh, Levi Goldberg to be in debt to me, then when I get fired, he's going to say, oh, well, come over here and work for me. You did me a favor, and so I'm going to you come work for me. That's that's what he's trying to do. That's what the steward's trying to do. And so the, 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 the rich man, instead of condemning that, says, because this is a parable, you're, you're pretty shrewd. That's a pretty shrewd move. So, so shrewd is he that he's going to be okay. This manager's going to be okay as far as financial things are concerned. So he receives praise, and the man and the rich man says, "The children of this world are shrewder than my disciples. This world does worldliness better than the saints do worldliness. Don't mimic the world, but use what you have wisely." Now remember, as Christ followers, we're stewards, and who owns what we are stewards of? God. So we are to be wise stewards and faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us because wealth will fail, money will fail. Hey, we need friends who outlive our our world and our wealth, and we need them to befriend us. So think in terms of your future home, which is heaven. Use what you have wisely to glorify God and store up treasure in heaven rather than here. That's a kind of a complicated, kind of a complicated uh, parable, but I think the point to us is clear: be a faithful steward, be wise, and remember. And we're going to see this in a minute. Don't don't circle your life around stuff. Don't circle your life around stuff, or you'll regret it. So I think the next story helps explain the first one. So let's go on to verse 10. Now, think on these words. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And then this most famous verse, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay. Uh, I don't know your financial status, but most of you. So let me just ask you this question. Would you be a generous, rich person? Now, if you're already rich, then answer that in real time. Are you generous? If you're not rich, then would you be a generous, rich person? I don't know how many times, this is tongue in cheek. I don't know how many times I've said to God, God, I'd be, man, God, I'd be a very generous rich person. Why don't you try it out, God? Just let me show you. (laughs) Well, since I'm not rich, maybe God knows that I wouldn't be all that generous. I don't know. I'd like to think I would be. 
I try to be generous with what I have now. How about you? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Conversely, whoever's dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. I've had, you know, we can we can kind of laugh nervously and make of this what we will, but you know, I've heard folks say, "I don't know why God doesn't give me more." I man, I would be so faithful. I would do this. I would do that. I would bless the church. I'd bless every Christian organization in the country. And you know, yeah, well, I don't know whether you would or wouldn't. But God knows. So the challenge here for us is to faithfulness. Faithfulness as a steward of what God has entrusted to you. Be faithful what you got. Be it little or be it much. That's that's the challenge. Serve God, not money. Serve God, not, and you can't do both. Now, he doesn't say, he doesn't say that you can't serve God if you've got a lot of money. It's not, it does not say that at all. You can serve God and have money, and we know people who do. But he does say you can't love them both. You can't love God and love money. You just can't. you got to love God and then serve God with money or whatever he's entrusted to you. Love God and serve God with what he's entrusted to you. So we understand the reality. We can't serve two masters. It's not possible. Now, in verse 14, we're going to look at an obedient steward. So that we'll have to stop there. And so next time we'll take up the rich man and Lazarus. But let's do verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They don't like these stories. And they're sneering at mocking Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justified yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. Whoa. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight, saying to them, those of you who are selfish and focus on money and money's your God, God detests what you value highly. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, that John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached by me, the Son of God, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife, whoa, where does this come from? Okay, it ties in to, to his teaching. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, verse 14 um, is a statement of fact. The Pharisees loved money, and they heard all this and sneered at Jesus. So they are both infuriated and infuriating. Get it? They're infuriated at Jesus, and they are infuriating toward Jesus and all that are, all that are there. So Jesus responds. And he says in chapter, in verse 15, the first part of it, you can't fool God. You can't fool God. You may dress up in all your garb and you may intone the right words, but God knows your heart. You can't fool God and God does not love what you love. I mean, he gets right to the heart of the matter. God does not love what you love. You know, no wonder they didn't like him. So God's commands in, in verses 16 and 17, and God must be obeyed in verse 18. He's drawing it all together by saying God must be obeyed. Now, we find this one verse on divorce and marriage interesting to be in this one spot, but take it for what it is. He speaks and says, he who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. There is an implication there. You know what the implication is, don't you? see in, in its depth, the implication is this man divorces the wife of his youth because he's having an affair and he's going to marry 
the woman with whom he's committed adultery. That's that's the heart of of this matter as Jesus speaks bluntly to those who are standing there. And if and if you don't think you know somebody standing there, this this was them. This was them. Maybe one of the Pharisees. If you divorce your wife and marry another woman, you've committed adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We can talk about that in the larger context of marriage, but remember, Jesus upholds the sanctity of the home, one man, one woman, freely and totally committed to each other for life. There are There is the exception clause in Matthew chapter 19, is it, where where... The exception clause is for infidelity, immorality. Um, doesn't mean you have to divorce your spouse, but it is allowed when he or she commits adultery. So I don't think our purpose is to camp out too long on that verse, but I think you get the picture of the sanctity of, of marriage. Now, I want to start next time with the rich man and Lazarus, another one of the great famous parables of Jesus, filled with richness and filled with depth and a picture of um, stewardship, continuing the theme of the chapter, but also a picture in which we get a glimpse of heaven and a glimpse of hell. So we'll pick up there next time. The rich man and Lazarus. So today's the 7th. I'm writing October 14th next to that passage. That's where we'll go next time. I love you guys. Y'all are so gracious, so kind, so patient. Uh, I know Vicky's got you muted, so uh, if you're out there saying, he's crazy, I, I don't hear it, so I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Well, I'm going to pray, and then if you want to hang around a little bit and talk, that's just great. Un- remember to unmute yourself if you want to be heard. And so uh, let's bow together. Father, we love you. We've, we've read a lot today. Um, we thank you that you love repentance. We thank you that you are a forgiving and loving God. And you demonstrated that by the sending of your son, Jesus, and you demonstrated that in forgiving me and us for our sin, bringing us into the kingdom of God, and adopting us into your family and treating us as your son or daughter. And we are so grateful. I pray that in regard to stewardship, we'd be faithful. We'd be faithful stewards of what you've given to us. Bring us back next Wednesday to study this great parable, Rich Man and Lazarus, and then to continue on in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Keep us safe, keep us strong, keep us healthy. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. All right. God bless you.